if you faint or fall unconscious at some point during this episode, I'll just uh, edit our way around it, shall I? I'll give you like appropriate forewarning. Like, Danny, it's all getting hazy. The world is spinning around me. As is well known to regular Station 13 listeners, the two of us were actually, uh, we met at a game company in Japan and I was there doing the audio work for VR games and you were there doing programming work for console games. Right. And uh, it's interesting that, yeah, up until this point, we'd actually the original Station 13 train ride, which is where you and I would chat to each other on the way to uh, a particular station on the Hangyu line in Osaka, uh, for some reason, we, we very, very rarely actually talked about our tastes in games or our interest in games. I wonder if that's something to do with the fact that we spent all day working on them. So the, the least that we want to do when we finish the days. Yeah, I mean, it might be. We did. I think we did talk quite a bit when we were because there was a, a time when we were working on prototypes together. Yeah. And we talked quite a bit about games, games design and you know, by extension, our own personal taste in games when we were doing that, I think. Generally, specifically, sort of with a skew towards the particular prototype we were working on, we did two. So, mm. you know, there was, I think we did talk about it a little bit, but uh, yeah, not a not a common topic of conversation, either in real life or on this podcast. Why don't we uh, start off by just giving a rundown of your your background with games as a consumer? Okay. So... I grew up in Spain, in the south of Spain, and obviously Nintendo were as big there as they were anywhere else. The other thing that was quite big in Spain was the ZX Spectrum, which is a British microcomputer made by Sinclair Research and later bought by Amstrad. And that was, obviously that was huge in the UK, Mm. but it was also really quite big in Spain. In fact, I believe there are some accessories for it that were only ever released in Spain. Really? I think the the number pad accessory was only ever released in Spain. I don't think they actually put that out in the UK. Anyway, when I was very small, I wanted a Nintendo like everyone else. And I would often, I think next to the bank, there was a sort of video and video games kind of shop where they had a Nintendo on display with the controllers out and by a Nintendo Entertainment System and NES, right? The controllers were out, but they weren't, I don't think they were actually plugged in. So it just had the original Super Mario Brothers on the NES playing the demo. You know, if you just leave it on the start screen for however long it is, it goes through the demo. Right. And so I so wanted this and I would hold the controllers and I basically learn all the moves that Mario made so I could press the right button at the right time, which I used to do in the arcades as well, like the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles arcade. Right. I used to sort of, because I I never had enough spare change to actually pay to play these games. Right. Uh, So I used to sort of learn the demos quite well and just make out like I was playing the demo. (laughs) Right. Um, So anyway, so I really wanted a NES, but did not get one. I don't know... To what extent I I begged for one. It seems to me, in my memory, like it was clear that I wanted one, uh, but my parents didn't get me one. But Mm. I don't know how clear it actually was. (laughs) It's clear in my head. Um, But anyway, I was obviously into all that kind of thing. And what they did get me 
was the ZX Spectrum. Mm. The, I actually went through a couple of ZX Spectrums because they're quite prone to breaking. Right. Uh, but I got the, the ZX Spectrum Plus first, which is uh, the same spec as the original 48K Spectrum, right. but with a better keyboard. And then later that broke. And through their work, actually, they had they were working teaching, I think at this point, teaching English for business or something like that. But right. the same place that they worked offered IT lessons. And if you pass the course, your prize for passing the course was a ZX Spectrum Plus 2A, which was the 128K model that came out a bit later. Right. And they just had a cupboard full of these things. And so my parents just claimed one of those. <laughs> and that's what I got. So I had that and the ZX Spectrum for people who are young whippersnappers don't remember the way things worked back then was it used a cassette tape as its data storage device. Right. So instead of having a a disc or a CD or something like that, you would put in a cassette tape and it made you would have to type in load quote mark, quote mark. So you, you had to type in a little bit of basic code in order to do anything at all, even just to play a game. Right. And then it would, and then you play the tape and it would make very similar sounds to the sounds that modems used to make in the early days of the internet. Right. So if you're familiar with that, again, young people may not have ever heard this sound. Uh, do you want to hear my impression of the ZX Spectrum loading sound? I was actually just going to do my impression of a modem, but you you, you go first. Okay, this is not of a modem. This is the ZX Spectrum loading sound, which is subtly different. I see. And it goes, I haven't done this for many years, so I may, may be rusty, but it goes like this. That's uh, it's not over. It's not over. So, sorry. There's always two phases, you see. Because <laughs> the first thing it loads is a little data segment telling you the game that's about to come out. That's really short. And then it loads. And then usually the next thing it loads is the title screen. And and when I was when I was a kid, I didn't really understand what was going on. And so you know, I just thought saw this as all part of the the loading process and it's like you know you have a loading screen now right it brings up a picture on the screen and you get a loading bar right what i didn't realize is during the time that it's loading the title screen most of the time it's not actually loading anything else Mm. so that time and it was very distinctive you would see the the screen usually depended on the loader but usually the screen would appear first in black and white and it would show you the first line and then it would show you the line eight lines down from that mm. and then another line eight line down, lines down from that and so forth until it got to the bottom and then it would go back up and it would lo- do the second line and then the one eight lines down from that and so on right? until it had filled the screen with a black and white image and then at the end it would just, and the, the sound of this bit was also quite distinctive, it would fill in all the color right, right at the end in 8x8 eight eight blocks. And I only realized years later that that whole time that it spends doing that is a complete waste of time just 
to show you that, that screen because that thing that it's loading, you know, the first line and then eight lines down, it's because it's actually loading it from the tape directly into video memory. Right. And that's the way that video memory is laid out. So that's why it's in that order. Right. And so it wasn't actually loading any of the game at this point. So you'd get through this whole loading process. You'd finally get the title up. And then, again, there'd be a bit of silence. And then... <laughs> and it starts loading the actual game. Danny, I, I, just, have to, <laughs> I just have to pass comment on your, uh, your, your impersonation. That is astoundingly accurate. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think you've proven yourself as a legitimate, legitimate true fan of the ZX Spectrum. I, um, I, I think I could plug a microphone into a Spectrum and just do that and load something you know dizzy down the rapids or something <laughs> I'm just oh yeah dizzy down the rapids that's the one that goes <laughs> i think we've actually all tried that with a fax machine have you tried that with a, but uh, with the zx uh, <laughs> with, with, with the zx spectrum that that's uh, 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 yes i think i used to when i was working at an internet cafe we used to get quite a lot of faxes and they were mostly just junk mail type faxes right Yes, I, I was always quite tempted to, when, when you pick up the phone and you just hear the sort of sound of the fax trying to connect with you on the other end and you're like, shall I give it a go? <laughs> <laughs> Never successfully pulled it off there. Well, you don't know that. You, you don't know what came out on the <laughs> other side. You may have actually produced something. Well, no, 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 because this was a, an incoming fax. Oh, okay. So I, the sound I had to make was the initialization handshake handshake sort of yeah okay i'm prepared to receive your fax now right and that is that is unlikely that i could pull that off <laughs> with my voice <laughs> so anyway that was the sound the beautiful sound of zx spectrum loading i might see if i can insert a clip of an actual zx spectrum loading I should have thought of that before I did the impression. You can compare side by side. <laughs> I, I see no real need for that, really. Good I, I think uh, I, they're, they're basically identical. Yeah, basically interchangeable. <laughs> so, uh, so I would load these games, and I had I didn't have all that many games. They were quite difficult to get. I said, you know, the Spectrum was popular in Spain, but I was a little bit too young for the peak of the Spectrum. Mm. So the original ZX Spectrum. I think came out in 1983 or 1984. Right. And I don't think I got my first Spectrum until 89, maybe even 1990. So that that was, you know, I, Amstrad bought Sinclair in 1989, I think. So it was already in the Amstrad era by this point. Hmm. And I think they were, you know, it was much less common to find these games in shops and stuff. So I had a few games. And it also came with a book explaining all about how the machine worked. Right and including instructions on how to program in ZX Basic, mm. which was the programming language that it came with. And this was a common thing. Back in that era, microcomputers, not really consoles, but microcomputers would come with a book that told you everything about the machine. It's like, this is what processor is in it. This is how it works. This is how RAM works. They were quite sort of educational. And I guess it came from an era, you know, the, the machine two machines before the Spectrum, the ZX80, started out as a kit machine. So you actually had to build the thing yourself. Like, And that's not like putting together a PC like these days where you buy a motherboard and you buy a video card and you jam one in the other and jobs are good. Mm. It's, you know, you literally you're sent a bag of transistors <laughs> right. and a board and like you have to solder it on. So that was the, that was the ZX80. 
the ZX Spectrum was prefabricated, but it was still sort of part of the culture that you got these books explaining how it all worked and everything. Right. Anyway, you know, I, I credit the Spectrum and I credit my parents' decision to buy me a Spectrum and not what I really wanted, which was a Nintendo, hmm. with, you know, my current career because I ran out of games to play on it quite quickly. Hmm. And I was bored and I had this computer and it came with this book and I liked reading. Uh, and the book was like, yeah, type in 10, print, my sister's silly, 20, go to 10, and the computer will say how silly your sister is. It's like, oh, well, that's quite good. <laughs> and then I flip further in the book and it's like, oh, yeah, here's how you draw a circle. And the spectrum is so slow that you can literally see it drawing the circle. Like it, wow. it draws it, it draws a line in a circle and it's having to calculate where to go next right. at each stage. So it's sort of draws, you can see it drawing round in this circle. Mm. So that was that was where I first got my start in programming. And I was quite young. I don't really remember how young, uh, but probably six or seven. Are you interested at all in any of the um, recent day attempts to you know bring back a bit of the glory of the zx spectrum i think there are a few like kickstarter projects for like updated units with like usb ports and stuff like that and have you seen any of those? there have been yeah there was the the zx vega i think it was called which turned into a bit of a vaporware project and i think there's something else coming soon which i haven't really followed and there's a book that's recently been released mm. which is sort of celebrating a lot of the classic games of that era. What were some of the classic games of that era on the ZX Spectrum? Oh, now you've got me. The absolute classics that come to mind are, of course, Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy, right. which are, are platform games. One of which I think is impossible. I think Jet Set Willy actually cannot be completed. Mm. It's got a, a a bug that happens before the end with like a an infinite hole where you fall out the bottom and come out the top and just keep falling forever. Wow. And I think the guy who made it who was called matthew smith i think he just assumed that no one would get that far and so he was like oh that'll do uh. <laughs> <laughs> i wish we could do that nowadays <laughs> nobody will ever see this yeah. nobody will get this far right. we'll just stop here that's fine yeah. that'll do so those were two games you mentioned were there any others that you those are the two by the same i i mean for me personally the ones that i so there are some some that i personally played a huge amount the monty series the first of which i think was called monty on the run but the one that i tended to play mm. was called alvida zane monty right and it starred this character called monty mole right who was on the run from the police that's why the first one's called monty on the run and it was another it was another sort of classic zx spectrum platform game kind of in the style of manic miner and games like that right but i i just remember alvida zane monty Part of the shtick of it is that he's actually flying around trying to, you know, I think the first Monty on the run is, he's on the run in quite a local area. But in Alvida's own Monty, he's a bit of a jet setter and he's sort of going to all these different places. And he starts in Gibraltar, which is not that far from where we lived. So it was always quite exciting to see. Mm. <laughs> oh, we're in Gibraltar, it's just down the road. <laughs> it was like an hour and a half away or something. But So uh, th there was that. And another game that I that is, that is not really that good, but I have very fond memories of, is Horace Goes Skiing. <laughs> have I shown you Horace Goes Skiing? Have you seen? I will put a link in the show notes. I think there's probably an emulator. You can actually play the original, but I, I may also put a YouTube video or something like that. Horace was this just really bizarre 
character. In fact, I'm going to send you a picture. So the very first Horus game is just flat out a Pac-Man clone. Right. Right. It's <laughs> totally uninteresting. But with this like really weird sort of nightmarish character. And Horus Goes Skiing takes that character and puts it in a skiing game. I see. Here we go. Send you this. So yeah, Hungry Horus is the first one, which is basically just like Pac-Man. <laughs> and Horus Goes Skiing is the second one. And in Horus Goes Skiing... It starts off being like a Frogger clone, and then it turns into a skiing game. So mm. you have to cross the road to get to the ski shop, which, for reasons that are unclear, given that there's clearly plenty of space on the side of the ski resort, is on the other side of the road to the ski resort. <laughs> you start off on the side of the ski resort. You've got to cross the road, get some skis, cross the road again, and then you can go skiing. You've got some amount of cash. I think the skis actually cost you money. Right. And then if you ever die, for example, if you get run over, then you have to pay like hospital fees. So the ambulance comes and picks you up and you have to pay for that. And I think it's game over when you run out of money or something like that. Right. I don't think it's a certain number of lives thing. But like that road crossing bit at the beginning is just stupid and annoying. It's like, why is this here? Right. And then you get into the skiing bit, and that's that's just a fairly classic skiing game. But you're quite large on the screen, and you're the shape of this this weird Horace character. Have you got that up now? Can you see? Yeah. What is that? It's like, like, it's like a tooth. He's got two big eyes in the middle of his chest. He's got one arm hanging off the top of him. <laughs> it's, he's. It's like a kind it's of bizarre. It's like a tooth with eyes and one arm. And like a, <laughs> a bit of green broccoli stuck on the side that got left there from tonight's dinner. <laughs> That's beautiful. There's a wonderful sort of innocent freedom about the, the game design in, in that 8-bit era, isn't it? It's yes. Like, you know, why not? Let's just do it. Let's just have, you know. Let's just stick this thing in here. I mean, there's another game, a classic, and the ZX Spectrum as well, being so big in the UK, has some just very sort of char- what I think of as kind of charmingly British kind of things to it and, and games that were on it right uh, there, there's one game for example where you're trying to mow your lawn but the neighbor's dog might get into your garden and chase after you you've got to simultaneously complete the mowing of your lawn without getting caught by your neighbor's dog or something like that i really sort of banal everyday things right. got turned into games quite a lot back then it's like a I think it's just like an open playing field, really. It's like what anything goes in. The- right. And the, and the limitations are so high. Right. Just to squeeze one more series in that I think deserves a mention, uh, the Dizzy series of games, which did actually migrate to a lot of other platforms. Mm. And eventually there was a NES one, but it was originally on the Spectrum and it was made by the Oliver Twins. Dizzy is an egg with feet and hands. It's an egg with sneakers, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, that's right. And there's there's a whole load of them. The one I played the most of was probably Fantasy World Dizzy. Right. Uh, curiously, I played a game called Dizzy Down the Rapids, which is a departure from the usual Dizzy game. Most of them were platform games. And what, what for the ZX Spectrum was towards the at- latter end of the ZX Spectrum era, platform games became a bit more... High fidelity is putting it a bit far, mm. but in the very early games, like one eight by eight character square would be your character. Right. And so you'd have this tiny little character walking in this very 
large area. And what tended to happen as time went on was that they made the character bigger. They constructed a sprite out of like six eight by eight character squares. Mm. And so the whole scale decreases or increases depending on how you think of it. But you're much closer in, in a sense, to the right. world. Fantasy World Dizzy was, was in that style. And all of the Dizzy games really were like that. Uh, but Dizzy Down the Rapids was different. You were you were going down rapids. You were sort of in a raft or something going down this river. And there would be things on the side sort of trying to shoot you and things. And I played this game while listening to the audiobook of The Hobbit. Okay. <laughs> and I had not read The Hobbit at this point. My first reading of The Hobbit was via audiobook. And to this day, if I read The Hobbit, like physically read the book, I get images of Dizzy Down the Rapids and the specific sort of part of the level that I was on at that point in the book. Mm. Like I get to a certain point in the book where like, actually there's a point in the book where they all jump in a load of barrels, isn't there? And they go down some rapids i think right. they they jump in some barrels to hide from some orcs or something the dwarves and bilbo basically right yeah and i i remember listening to that bit while i was playing this game and so whenever i get to that bit of the book even when i'm physically reading it uh, you know reading it on paper not in audiobook i literally get these flashes in front of my eyes of of that game so it's weird how these memories kind of i think especially audio memories kind of stay with you mm. anyway that's dizzy but yeah so why an egg right it seems like a really odd choice for a character. Mm. But then you think about the limitations and it's like, well, it's kind of ideal because it's not that hard to draw, but you can always see which orientation it is. It's better than a circle. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the problem of not being able to see that it's moving can be solved by just slapping on some sneakers. Right. Right. Exactly. Brilliant. So, you know, you, you get a lot of things like that, like things that kind of seem like an inherent part of the character that it turns out we're just solving some problem. The same applies to characters that still exist today. Mm. Like Mario only has a moustache because it just looked like a blob. And the first version of, you know, Jumpman that, that Miyamoto did for, for Donkey Kong did his face without the moustache. And it was just totally, you couldn't really see what was going on. Mm. And he, he put in a little moustache just to give it some sort of features right so it's right. so make it recognizable as even a face right and that's that's the origin of, of mario's mustache so there's a lot of these things that still live on now that are the result of just having to solve some funny problem back in the 80s sadly the uh, zx spectrum loading screen uh, title screen style hasn't lived on that that hasn't aged so well has it that that is tragic yeah <laughs> we're missing that sound you know generations of, of gamers and computer enthusiasts will never experience that sound but now they will on the station 13 podcast now they will now they have the opportunity right you can you can thank me later yeah there is a a like i was saying there's a beautiful sort of freedom and an innocence to the the design of 8-bit games because in those days you know the whole novelty of just playing something that was graphical was enough to sort of kind of gloss over any of the uh, the uh, implausible aspects of, you know, controlling an egg-wearing sneakers. Yeah, and some of the enemies you'd get as well, like, oh, here's another classic game, again, another platform game for the ZX Spectrum, Technician Ted. Mm. Again, pretty much another knockoff of Manic Miner, but Technician Ted is like an office technician, and the whole point of the story is he's going through this office, and all the office furniture and the printers and the, like, 
chests, filing cabinets and chests of drawers and things like that have gone bad mm. and they're just running after you trying to eat you and things. <laughs> Why not? Bizarre. Why not? Like, <laughs> do, do the, in those days, uh, I think I know your answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. In those days, did the technical limitations of the ZX Spectrum ever occur to you as limitations? No. I didn't know anything else. Mm. I mean, this that was all I knew. There's a funny thing that you, that is sort of super obvious now and was obvious that i mean i i this i did not notice but i d- did not not notice uh, i noticed the, on the zx spectrum the color buffer the area in memory that said what color each section of the screen should be mm. was much lower resolution than the actual pixel buffer right mm. And this is part of the reason why, as I said before, you loaded the monochrome title screen first and then the colors got filled in later. So each entry in the color buffer described the foreground and background color of an 8x8 square. But it was actually impossible to color an individual pixel within that square mm. in a different different color. It had to be one of those foreground and background colors. And so you get these weird color bleeding problems where like, if you had a sprite that was a different color from the background, as they walked across the screen, the areas of the background around them would sort of flash back and forth between their original color and the sprite's color mm. as this color buffer was was changing. And so you notice those little color bleed problems and the good studios would do what they can to construct the scene so you didn't really see it so much. Right. But, you know, th- these were definite issues that were, were noticeable, but they were just, all the games were like that. So... Right, You didn't really think about it. That's just the way things were. It's interesting because I often wonder whether noticing those limitations of the hardware or more to the point, not noticing them is a result of, you know, the innocence of youth or the cynicism of age right? or whether it is just something about it being such a new medium. And one uh, interesting example of this that I can think of is the game Elite Mm. which I still play to this day in its latest incarnation called Elite Dangerous. And in its time, Elite for 8-bit systems started on the BBC Micro, I think. Right, that's what I, I yeah I was thinking. Because that was huge on the spectrum as well. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit uh, later on when I talk about my background in games. But Elite was this incredibly, well, on paper at least, it was this groundbreaking game which was 3D and you had like millions of stars out there with planets and they all had these kind of little briefing dockets about them where you could read about the, you know, a little bit about the economy or what kind of civilization is there. And they all had, uh, you know, like commodity markets that you could buy and sell goods and they would all be fluctuating and you could, you know, make profits between certain star systems on certain trade runs and you could uh, shoot ships for bounties and all this incredible stuff as an 8-bit game. And it's funny that I remember when I first played Elite on the Apple II, it would just seemed like another great game. You know, there was nothing nothing there that, that made me think, wow, this is amazing that there's millions of stars on this floppy disk. Right. You know, it, it just sort of came across as being, well, this is just the way this game is and it's great. And I wonder now whether that's the result of just innocence of youth or or something else, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, well, and also in a sense, I think you didn't really appreciate sometimes the amazing lengths that games are going to to do technically impressive things. I mean, right. you know, as far as I was concerned, a game was was great and fun, or it wasn't. Mm. And Elite was both. Elite was an amazing game, 
but in in both it was a great game to play but it was also in you know from a technical standpoint you know groundbreaking right but there there are other games that i mean i really liked the bruce lee game on the zx spectrum it's a game called bruce lee mm. it's just called bruce lee it's not you know enter the dragon or anything it's not based on a particular film i don't think it's just bruce lee right and and i really like that but looking back at it now like it's a fairly simple spectrum platform game it doesn't really do all that much impressive technically and it's got you know quite a small number of rooms Hmm. so it's you know technically it's not that impressive a game but it was you know i probably played that at least as much as i played elite Hmm. there's also um of that genre of fairly groundbreaking games that definitely left an impression on people of the day was uh, Karatika by Jordan Mechner. Mm. Uh, was another one which had sort of this roughly almost rotoscoped animation. Very, very slow. If you look at it now, it just looks very, very slow. But uh, at the time, it was just sort of amazing to see something moving so realistic like that. Right. I never actually played Karatika, but I, I did play Prince of Persia, of course. Right. Right. Uh, when that came out. And that is rotoscoped. Right. I don't know about Karataka. I think I, I saw a documentary, something about him filming on VHS. Right. He filmed his brother. Right. Doing the moves. Doing the moves. And then sort of copied those out or something. Yeah, plotted them out on graph paper, I think. Yeah. Which is amazing. Anyway. Uh, he's a good follow on Twitter. If you're looking for games people to follow on Twitter. Jordan Mechner. Bit of a legend. So you you were more on the Amiga side, right? The Commodore and all of that. Yeah, so I, um, as you know, I was born and grew up in Adelaide. And strangely, Adelaide was oddly bereft of anything Nintendo mm. and more or less anything console. I think I remember later on at my school, my primary school, there was a, a Sega Mega Drive mm. or a Sega Genesis for our American listeners. But it was very, very much a kind of computer gaming environment. And I don't remember anybody. I think the first time anyone that I actually knew owned something by Nintendo Mm. was way later. It was actually like the Nintendo... I can't remember now. The What's the purple cube-looking one? GameCube. (laughs) You skipped the N64. Oh, okay, sorry. Yes, it was the one before that. (laughs) I don't know. So there was the NES, the SNES, the Super NES, and then the next one was the... N64, Nintendo 64, which was the one with the three-pronged controller. Okay, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the first time I ever saw anything Nintendo. And it was like uh, Mm. we had the Game & Watch Nintendo things, like the little uh, cute little sort of credit card-sized LCD. And some of those were great as well. They were great, yeah. But other than that, I just really had no exposure at all to anything Nintendo. And I don't know why. I don't know why it just lacked any popularity at all in in Adelaide. But Mm. what we had in place of that was... Basically, in the early days, you were either of the Commodore 64 school or you weren't and you were something else. And uh, I don't know why, but my brother got from my parents an Apple II. Mm. And that was our 8-bit machine for the 8-bit era. All right. was the Apple II. And there were lots of fancy. It was an Apple II with a a monochrome green screen. Mm. We had like two floppy drives for it. And, yeah, there's a lot of fantastic games for the Apple II that I can remember, two of which I've already mentioned, Elite and Karatika. But, um, mm. 
or karateka, I think, as we as we used to say it before I could speak Japanese. Karateka. <laughs> karateka. <laughs> there was another game, Auto Duel, which was based on the GURPS role-playing system, or maybe the other way around. When we last talked about the GURPS role-playing system, you told me it was the other way around. Okay, but maybe. Who knows? I'm not sure. <laughs> there was another Defender clone called Repton, which was one of the very first games. Mm. Actually, the very, very, very first game that I can remember seeing was on... This is a test for your nostalgia. Have you ever heard of a machine called a Heathkit Zenith? No. So Zenith were a computer company, and I think they either were bought by or they bought a company called Heathkit, mm. kind of like Radio Shack. Right. Kind of um, marketing these kit computers that you could build yourself, I guess. Right, right. And the Heathkit Zenith was an 8-bit machine predating the Apple Macintosh where it was all in one unit. This thing was all actually in one unit. Mm. So you had, a, you had the CRT screen, the floppy drive, the keyboard, all within one fairly large unit. Mm. And... Uh, my dad was a hospital pharmacist at the time, and on weekends when he would be busy and go to work, he would take me with him. And on the Heathcote Zenith there, they had one game. Mm. No, sorry, two. One was, I believe it was Zork, which was a text adventure. Classic. And the other one was called Dungeon, which was like a, a net hack or rogue clone. Mm. So that's what uh, people who are familiar with games will be familiar with the term roguelike. That, of course, comes from those original ASCII games such as Dungeon, which is one of them, where the famous thing is that you're like a an at symbol in the center and uh, the entire environment is made up of ASCII symbols. So, for example, you know, dollar signs and hash signs and, and periods and quote marks and, right. and percentage signs and stuff like that. That was, I think, the very first game that I played. And it's great how in those days, it's still true now that, you know, if I show my children a typical roguelike game, like a proper roguelike game that's actually made of ASCII symbols. Mm. Some really good ones these days. Any of the games in the Ang Band series, which you can look up, are really great. And there are so many variants of those. And um, probably one of the one, the best ones, which is impressive, easy to get into, easy to play, and, and great fun, is called Brogue. Brogue. Yeah. <laughs> Brogue really kind of pushes the boundaries of what you would expect for an ASCII game because it uh, it does some really neat tricks with ASCII characters to make it look even more realistic. Even more realistic. Yes, even more realistic. But <laughs> th- those games are, are fantastic because they really show you the power of the imagination mm. and that after a, a little while of playing, you know, you may be a little at symbol there and that thing across the room, mm. the room being just, you know, a grid of periods surrounded by you know a, a box of hash symbols mm. that that red d that is coming towards you is a very powerful red dragon and you should panic right you know right, right, right. <laughs> it only takes like 10 or 15 minutes of playing these games to really you know you really get into it and it just doesn't matter that the symbols that you're looking at look nothing like right. what a red dragon would look like or what a wall would look like funny enough i think one of the the other podcasts uh, two bit geeks another podcast very good. Check it out. Anyway, they were talking about this area of games mm. in, I think, their last episode and about Zork specifically. Right. And they were also saying, you know, the imagination was key and that part of the reason they, they're slightly older than I am at least. I think maybe they're similar age to you. Right. And part of the reason they don't play so many computer games these days is because they feel like their imagination isn't being exercised as much as the, as it used to be. Mm, interesting. Which is an interesting thing. I I have continued to play computer games, and I do wonder whether I've fallen out of the habit of playing these games and fallen out of the habit of having to construct all these images in my mind. And I'm used to playing games now, which 
give it all to you and you know beautifully rendered and you can see the scene mm. and i'm not criticizing those games i think they're amazing and i you know interested in graphics and and like to see that push forward but i go back sometimes and play like some of the older games that i used to play and for example rogue mm. and i do find it harder to get into now than i did you know back when that was all i knew really like yeah i find it i don't know i it's it's i feel that limitation now in a way that i didn't back then interesting maybe you're not playing the right games i think that the the kind of imagination that you need these days with certain games is a little bit different but i think that there's still the opportunity there to use your imagination Mm -hmm. one great example is the aforementioned elite so the latest incarnation of elite is called elite dangerous and um it's made by the same people or the same person, David Brabham and his amazing team Frontier in Cambridge in the UK. And um, it's, I mean, I've been playing it for the past year and a half fairly consistently and it's amazing. And one of the things that Elite does really well, which is a little bit off-tempo with what you tend to find in other games of its scale. I mean, just as a, a basic introduction first, it's like an open world space trading combat bounty hunting, asteroid mining, political uh, exploration game. So it's kind of an open world space game where you can do what you like. There are various sort of directions that you can go in. You can be an explorer, a trader, a bounty hunter. You can take passenger missions or you can you can participate in politics around star systems and stuff like that. So mm. it's a fantastic game. But one thing that Elite does, which is a little bit off tempo with what other games are doing in the same kind of area, is that there's a lot of downtime in Elite. Like there's a lot of time that you wouldn't tend to find in other games of this caliber where you've got basically nothing happening. You know, you'll sit there. Right, right. You'll sit there just sort of, okay, you've got like uh, 1,284 light seconds or whatever from, from where your position is to the space station that you have to dock at mm. to deliver these goods that somebody's paying you to deliver. So you've basically just got to sit there looking at the range counter ticking down, Mm. waiting for your ship to get there. And, you know, in most other games, they would consider that as poor design because the player's not doing anything and the player's just sort of sitting there looking at the stars going by, looking at this range counter slowly ticking down with nothing happening. Mm. I mean, there's the potential to be sort of pirated on your way towards the station, so I guess there is that that risk Mm. and there's perhaps a sense of danger, but basically you're doing nothing. You're just sort of sitting there looking at the stars, you know. And when I realized what was going on with this decision to leave that kind of moment in the game, Mm. I actually came out with a huge amount of respect for Brabham and his team for leaving in that kind of thing Mm. because after a little while, you you don't think of it as, oh, this is boring. I'm just sitting here waiting for for my ship to get close to the station. Mm. After a little while, your mind starts to wander and naturally your mind wanders onto what you're doing and your ship and where you are and you'll, you know, you'll look around your cockpit and you'll look around at the stars flying by outside or you'll be looking at your um, galaxy map and thinking about what you're going to do next or maybe looking over how your ship is configured and thinking about how you might like to change out your your different armaments or your you know internal slots for this kind of upgrade or spending money on maybe buying a new ship or you know maybe that kind of ship is best for me next and all of this kind of stuff is is great for creating 
those sort of intrinsic rewards and intrinsic missions that you'll make for yourself. Mm. So you might start, as you're sitting there waiting, you might start to think, oh, I think I'd like to purchase this kind of ship next. Will that cost this much? Maybe if I sell my current one, Mm. I can get a profit on these parts and then I can have enough to just get the base model, but then I can do a few missions and then buy some upgrades and maybe it'll be good enough then, but maybe it's not worth it anymore. And, you know, the opportunity to do that and the opportunity to just to sort of sit there and let your mind wander within the context of the game mm. is sort of like an application of imagination in the same way that you look at an at symbol and after 20 or 30 minutes of playing the game, you basically associate yourself with that at symbol and it, it becomes just as vivid and as almost immersive as actually seeing a little character who's animated that looks like a human mm. walking around in the world. So I think that there are probably many other examples as well of uh, modern games and the way that they allow for players to use their imagination a little, but it's definitely different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I definitely don't want to claim that, you know, nobody is using their imagination anymore and that kids today don't know what they're missing and all the rest of it. But it it is a different Mm. sort of thing. And all, all I was really trying to say was that I don't feel like I get as much out of some of these older games now right. as I felt like I did back then. You should definitely give Brogue a try. <laughs> because uh, I shall look it up. Despite having a fantastic name, unlike a lot of roguelike dungeon style games, which you know, every key is basically something that your character can do. Mm. <laughs> so they do take quite a lot of um, the learning curve is very, very steep right. because you need to actually work out what all these keys do. Right. Brogue it's very, very quick and easy to get into. And I think much of the, the things that your character can do can be done by just moving. Uh, moving in the direction of a door will open it or right. you know, yeah. moving in the direction of, a, of a, an enemy will attack it or stuff like that. So mm. it's very quick and easy to get into. So I can definitely recommend that. And also Brogue has some pretty fancy ASCII tricks that, they, that he does with um, color. It's sort of at that point, specifically with Brogue, you start to question yourself like what is the point of this even being in ascii if it looks this good (laughs) you know why not just make it graphical but anyway that's oh i see yes i've I've found some screenshots now and i see your point it is uh yes it's quite impressive yeah i mean at that point it's just like well why not just make it graphical i mean there's not much point to it being ascii anymore but anyway it's it's a great game worth checking out i don't know yeah i don't know i think it's yeah it's got its style so just coming back to um my history. So yeah, we, we started off with the Apple II and many games that I can remember enjoying very much. Captain Goodnight. I don't know if you've ever heard of Captain Goodnight. No. Which is a fantastic game. Actually, I think exclusively on the Apple II. I don't think it was on any other system. Or maybe it was on the Commodore 64 as well. I'm not sure. But Captain Goodnight was a really great um, platform game. More like a side-on adventure game, I suppose you would call it, mm. with a lot of really neat sort of attention to, attention to detail. Like, for example, if you didn't move the character for a long time, he would start playing with a yo-yo, mm. which was like that kind of little thing would uh, – that was really, really impressive. <laughs> Sonic did that as well, actually. Oh, did That's he? exactly what Sonic did. Sonic the Hedgehog. You got a, a red yo-yo out and started playing with it. Right, that was many, many years later, though. So I can, I think, Captain Goodnight can can, can claim uh, <laughs> first rights on that one. But yeah, there were many other great games for the Apple II. But while we had the Apple II, most of my friends had the Commodore sixty-four, and uh, the Commodore sixty-four, of course, came with all of those classic uh, 
8-bit games that it had, as well as its tape drive and its cartridge unit and its floppy disks and its joysticks and its mouse and all the, all the stuff that you could get for the Commodore 64. And the classic SID chip. Oh, yes. It's sound chip, which is, is legendary. Yes, let us, not, let us not forget that. Then I went away to Europe for a while with my mother and my father, and we came back and my brother ushered me into his room because he, he had stayed in Adelaide because uh, he was graduating from university at the time. Right. And uh, he said, come and check this out. And he had this shiny, gray, beige kind of sleek looking. It looked like a Lamborghini Countach. You know, it was like this <laughs> sort of Ferrari Lamborghini-esque design, but in a nice kind of 80s, 90s friendly beige color and um, had these vents on it and this like uh, this mysterious disk drive that was smaller than the one that we had before with these disks that were called floppies, but they weren't floppy. They were like really hard and they had these cool sliding metal plates on them. Right. And, you know, you'd stick the disk in and this light would come up and this clicking sound as it's going over the sectors. And uh, this was uh, in glorious, glorious 16-bit color and with this high-resolution color screen. Bear in mind that up until that point, the only thing I'd known was a, a green monochrome screen from an 8-bit computer. Right. So... I was already wetting my pants at the, the, how amazing everything looked. And the two first games that he showed me on the Commodore Amiga, which was this computer, basically solidified in my mind, right, that's what I want to do. <laughs> the, the two games were, you'll know the second one, because I think we've mentioned it before, and it's actually something that it, it connects us very, very tightly with our history and of how we met. But the first one was... The Amiga version of Double Dragon 2. Ah, oh, classic. I had that on the Spectrum. Yeah. Oh, so good. Now, the, the Amiga version was a little bit different to its counterparts on other platforms because it had a great, great, great title song by a demo scene musician called Uncle Tom. Mm. And he had written this demo song and basically rather unprofessionally by today's standards you would you would basically hear this demo song as you're just looking at the logo mm. <laughs> nothing else is happening you're just looking at the logo and you're just hearing this amazing piece of music and i actually remember tearing up at how moving this piece of music was now i listen to it now i can find you a link because yet there's somebody's actually put it up on youtube and it, it is really great of course and i still mm. i'm still moved in a similar way to how i was when i first heard it Maybe not to tears, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it, it's aged pretty well. Mm. Now, the thing to mention here is that the Commodore Amiga represented a very, very significant change in the direction of audio hardware for gaming devices, like very significant, because up until that point, we had things like the SID chip, mm. the Nintendos uh, and the Sega systems had also FM-based synthesis chips inside them. And those would produce FM sounds. FM stands for frequency modulation, which is a kind of uh, sound synthesis technique. The FM sounds of consoles and the Commodore 64 and uh, you know other comparable platforms of the time were just very, very artificial, basically. Right. So in Rolls Commodore Amiga, uh, the Commodore Amiga had four channels of 8-bit sampled sound. Mm. So you could play four... 8-bit samples at the same time. 
and an 8-bit sample would be capped off at something like 22 kilohertz, which would kind of sound sort of a little bit chunky Mm -hmm. somehow, like there wouldn't be the high end there, and often the high end would be compensated in some way or other by the hardware, so they get this sort of weird, chunky, lo-fi kind of sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Commodore Amiga could play four of these samples at the same time. And so what that meant for music and games is that because we're now using sampled sound and not artificially programmed reproduced sound, Mm. it meant that the game composers of the time could actually sample in their synthesizers and their keyboards of the time Mm. and use those samples to create the music. Mm. So it was a massive, massive change in the timbre of just game audio or just computer audio in general. And the variety of it, right? Absolutely, because you had... You know, those incredible synthesizers of the late 80s, which would be the DX7. You had the Roland D50. Mm. I believe you had the Korg Wave Station and the Korg M1 as well, Mm. slightly later for the M1. But these incredible synthesizers at the time that were pioneering amazing new sample, hybrid sample, hybrid synthesis sounds, along with the classic Mm. analog synthesizers of the the early 80s, like the Roland Junos and and the like. Sorry, I guess I'm going on a little bit about synthesis here. I guess you, no, that's you can tell I'm a bit passionate about that. But anyway, um, all of a sudden, the game composers had open to them, at least the ones who could f- afford a, wait for it, digitizer. Oh. A digitizer <laughs> would plug into the SCSI port of the right. SCSI SCSI port of your yep. Commodore Amiga. And it's basically like a, a bare naked PC board with an input jack mm. and, an, and a, and a uh, like an input gain trim knob <laughs> we actually had one my brother actually bought one a, a digitizer and it was it was amazing because i could like i can remember my friend and i recording us trying to say our names backwards and then reversing the sample <laughs> <laughs> and alex was always a my, my friend's name was dominic mm. so we would say right. and it would come out as dominic right, right, right. but Alex was uh, it was more like which was like very very difficult to get right. Anyway, so coming back to those games, the the demo scene composer Uncle Tom who wrote the game the music for Double Dragon Two, just that was my, my brain popped that afternoon that fateful afternoon. I just listened to that sound and thought this is you, you can do this. And the amazing thing, of course, and this is this is one reason why I feel despite my lack of background in anything Nintendo, Mm. which has come to bite me in the butt later on in my game development career when everybody around me uh, is an aficionado with Nintendo and and being the guy who has not played Zelda, who has not played, you know, all of these classic Nintendo games is rather embarrassing. (laughs) That's a a topic for later. The fact that the the music was this good and the, the amazing thing was that unlike the console games, if you wanted to try your hand at making music, then you could. You know, all the software is right there, and you could actually go. You can go and get. It was called Ultimate Sound Tracker, which is the uh, one of the very first tracker style audio workstation programs where you could actually take these samples and sequence them yeah. in the in rhythm, assigned with different speeds of playback to give them different pitch, and actually create music. And because it was a demo scene song, you could actually get this song by Uncle Tom and you can actually play the samples and you can actually remake your own song using his samples. And that was a a huge privilege to be able to not only be completely, utterly inspired by the work of these magnificent musicians and artists, but then to be able to actually 
try your own hand at it and actually go and get an art package right. or get a music package. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing I've, I've always felt a little bit about consoles is that we moved kind of from microcomputers and then later things like the Amiga, which I'm not sure whether still counts as a microcomputer, but uh, we moved from that sort of towards consoles and everything became much less hands-on at that point mm. and i think for everyone who had one of those computers like the zx spectrum for me or the amiga for you it was inevitable that you ended up trying to do trying to recreate the things you enjoyed that other people had made right like right trying your hand at, at programming a game because you played a game you liked right and the main interface of the computer is programming yeah or trying your hand at writing a song or even the fact that you could get like the original mod file or whatever it was for the Double Dragon theme and just load that up and see how he'd done it. Right. Like, exactly. I imagine that was amazing. Like, yeah, and it's kind of like um, it's kind of like web programming back in the early days of web programming, where you could go and see. Right. The you can always right click and view source. Exactly. Sort of and you can just see the way that people have done something. It's very easy to learn because there's there's just you know countless examples of the way to do anything that you would want to do mm. in the early days of web programming nowadays of course it's much more complicated but mm. the, the wonderful thing about those machines yeah is that whatever whatever tickled your fancy you know if if it was you standing next to me maybe you would have thought wow how did they do that cool graphic effect at the end of the game where the logo right. kind of gets broken up onto all these pixels how do they do that right if that's what impressed you then you know then you could actually go and figure out how they did it and and you know try it on your own or if if you were like me and you were impressed by the way it sounded or, you know, if you were like others and impressed by the way it looked. And the other fantastic thing about the Amiga was uh, the demo scene in general. Mm. Demo scene, how do we explain that? Okay, well, as a brief introduction, the Amiga and before at the Commodore 64, they were kind of bright flames burning too quickly because they almost were shooting themselves in the feet, being such elegant, wonderful platforms for programming very very quickly mm. talented programmers found ways to hack through the copy protection on games mm. and you would get the result of that would be what we would call cracked games cracked in the sense that the copy protection on the game that stops you from simply copying it from one floppy disk to another to give to your friend has been cracked or broken allowing you to freely copy it and distribute it amongst your friends and it started off with people cracking games and then distributing cracked versions, but in order to let people know that they were playing a cracked version and let people know who cracked this game for a little personal personal notori notoriety, these programmers would actually put tiny, tiny little intros into the boot sector of the floppy disk. Mm. So you're going to have to help me here. What is the actual size limit of the boot sector oh i don't know the boot sector on a amiga floppy disk i don't know it's not a ridiculous small very very small anyway <laughs> um so these little intros that would come up with like a little graphical thing saying this game was cracked by so-and-so were called crack tros as in cracked intro oh. and they would also in later days on the amiga these talented programmers would also figure out how to actually hack into the game's mechanics to allow you to give yourself things like unlimited lives or unlimited time or and they would be called trainers which is a funny name really isn't it trainer mm. anyway so uh, that was the beginning of the demo scene because basically the idea was how impressive can you make your intro in this tiny tiny amount of space that we have to squeeze it into and 
it kind of became an art form in itself in that these people, these uh, you know very, very talented programmers who were doing this would want to kind of outdo each other with their graphical chops, you know, mm. and, and show off to each other. This was cracked by, you know, Scoopex. <laughs> and then, the, the, you know, the guys from Paradox would see that and say, oh, those guys have upped us with this incredible crack throw. We have to do better than that. And none of it was fueled by any commercial intent because, of course, these games would become freely distributable amongst the the bulletin board networks and stuff like that. So, mm. you know, nobody was making any money out of it. It was just basically the honour and the glory of of doing more with less, basically. And that kind of kind of spun out into its whole own genre and its own art form called demo scene, creating the demos. Basically, on the Amiga, there was this thriving community of very, very talented graphics programmers and musicians who would create these art pieces, maybe like five minutes. You put in the disc and you watch this thing for five minutes, mm. which would be run kind of like a, almost like a music video, just sort of showing off fancy effects and tricks and doing amazing things all squashed onto one disc. Right. And the music for that would be created by these demo scene music uh, composers who I absolutely worshipped. <laughs> Because some of these guys would produce music that was that just would just floor you how how fantastic the the music would be, just all pushing out these four eight bit samples on the on the Commodore Amiga. So mm. it's just wonderful to see that kind of birth, the, the birth of that kind of genre. And the demo scene is alive and well today. Yeah, of course nowadays, yes, the, nowadays the limitations are entirely self imposed because. You know, for better or worse, nowadays there are really no limitations. <laughs> right, right. Um, so they do have sort of an interesting range of limitations. You know, there are. By the way, just while we're here, I did look up the Amiga floppy disk layout, and the boot sector has a bit of header information, and then 512 bytes. Excellent. There are actually two boot sectors, so potentially if you could make use of both sectors, you would have a total of one kilobyte available to you. Excellent. To put in your demo. Uh, so there, there are, I think there are still Commodore demo scene, like still using the Commodore hardware now yeah. to make demos and Amiga and stuff like that. Yeah. There are also sort of completely arbitrary restrictions like the 1K demo, the yeah. 4K demo, even on PC hardware, you know. Yeah, and it's fantastic. And I, I really love it. Actually, one thing that I just want to um, put in there, which has inspired me from the demo scene, actually... There's an online forum which I frequent sometimes called KVR Audio, mm. and they they run something called the One Synth Competition, and right. the One Synth Competition is where you need to make an entire track using one synthesizer. So generally, like a software synthesizer that will be freeware, mm. and they choose the synthesizer, right? That's right. And so every month they'll choose a freeware synthesizer that you need to create an entire song out of, just using the one synthesizer, right? To create all of the different parts so you'll actually have you know like 30 instances of the same synthesizer running in your audio project mm. uh, to create you know all of the sounds from like percussion through to you know the chords and bass and and uh, melodies and stuff like that and that gives me the same kind of thrill that back in the day you know seeing what uh, these demo scene groups would do to try and best each other mm. as and yeah nowadays as well demo scene is alive and well and it's a fantastic kind of thing because again it's nothing none of it is commercial and there's no money involved and it's just basically very friendly rivalry between right between right. Ex extremely talented musicians artists and programmers which is which i think is just fantastic yeah 
Another thing, which this isn't quite demo scene, but I may as well mention it while we're sort of in the neck of the woods, but has been really popular over the last maybe five years or something, is a, a site called Shader Toy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's similar. Which is shadertoy.com. And in that, you've got a, again, it's a restricted environment. You have to write a single shader. And I think you're allowed a certain number of texture slots and some other things. But whatever you're going to do, it has to go in a shader. It's not it's not like a, a full program. You might just want to quickly explain for our non-programmer listeners what a shader actually is. Ah, yes. Forgot about that. So a shader is, put simply, usually on your computer, you've got your your main processor the cpu and you have your graphics processor which is the gpu and a shader is essentially the code that runs on the gpu and it's usually used for doing graphics things Mm. so in a game you'll have a lot of stuff running on the cpu controlling the whole game and the layout and everything Uh, but then a lot of the visual effects you'll see the lighting and the reflections and you know fancy effects like lens flare and hdr and all the rest of it, those may well be written in the shader. Mm. Animations may be done in the shader sometimes. Mm. Various other things. But, you know, essentially you you could do anything. And in fact, there's, you know, a lot of people mine bitcoins in their shaders. (laughs) (laughs) They use the GPU to to do pointless maths. Have you heard that the, the total energy being expended on mining bitcoin now is greater than the entire energy consumption of the state of denmark there's an entire country's worth and not insignificant country's worth of energy being wasted on pointless maths to prop up a ponzi scheme but anyway (laughs) we can talk about bitcoin another day (laughs) yeah don't at me. So Shader Toy, yeah, that is another. <laughs> Shader Toy is another uh, excellent application. Shader Toy is another place, which is not really demo scene. I don't think you can call it no, not really. demo scene if there's no music. But there's, but it's a similar sort of desire to try and push this limited environment and see what you can make. So it's yeah, it's well worth having a play around. And- yeah. So just before we leave the uh, topic of games, the other game that I wanted to mention, I mentioned earlier on that there were two games that my brother first showed me that afternoon, which caused considerable pant wetting of a certain 10 year old the other one was a game called star glider 2 made by a team in the uk called argonaut software yes and we would come to be uh well affiliated with one of the um programmers from argonaut software who worked on star glider 2 who of course is the ceo of the company that i work for now and that we worked for together when we were in together in japan indeed star glider 2 was one of these games where it opens with this amazing, fairly irrelevant picture of, like this concept art picture of a spaceship, which is not actually the spaceship you fly in the game. And I don't really know. I think I think Giles might have mentioned that they just had it lying around or something. So they just popped it in there. Right. Like the first thing that happens in the game is you're flying, it's a 3D game and you're flying this kind of spaceship vehicle craft and it can fly in space and it can fly in atmosphere and it can fly in tunnels underground. Mm. And, you know, the first thing that happens in the game is, you know, you're flying down out of the atmosphere and you see the ground coming up towards you and there's thunder. Mm. And there's like this proper sounding sampled thunder and there's like lightning and it's like, wow, these sound effects, you know, the, the sound. And, you know, as you 
control the throttle of your spaceship to increase and decrease your thrust that the sound kind of changes nicely and makes it you know sound like you're actually uh, in a spacecraft with this these huge engines behind you and yeah that the sound effects were amazing and the uh, Starglider 2 was was a great game just because of the just the, this fantastic ambience that it created. So the last game that I wanted to mention, this blew my mind a little bit later, but in a much more slow, gradual, uh, lasting way. <laughs> slow mind blowing. Slow mind blowing. That's right. <laughs> that sounds more like a mind enlargement followed by eventual slow rupturing, <laughs> which is a little bit uh, grotesque. <laughs> oh, a gradual mind rupture. That's right. was uh, a game called Speedball 2 oh. by the Bitmap Brothers. Classic. Yes, the uh, the two game groups, well, I think two, but many. if there are any passionate Commodore Amiga fans out there, they, they're definitely going to disagree with me on this, but the two, in my opinion, the two prestige game development groups for the Commodore Amiga, like the the guys to emulate, like the absolute mm. top of the class, mm. were the Bitmap Brothers and Team 17. Mm. And the Bitmap Brothers had some fantastic games. Every one of them just just a, a smash hit, really. I mean, mm. just incredible, groundbreaking, envelope-pushing, epoch-making graphics, incredible sound, and just rock-solid gameplay that you, you just couldn't beat. So simple, mm. but so, so finely tuned and so fun. And Speedball 2, I think those Commodore Amiga enthusiasts out there who are listening, I think all of you will probably agree with me that is this is one of the, if not the greatest game on the Commodore Amiga, it was Speedball 2. <laughs> and there have been countless attempts to recreate Speedball 2 mm. on all different platforms and on emulations, and nobody's managed to do it. Like, still, nothing beats the original. Mm. And when you look at it, like, if you see a, a YouTube video of, of Speedball 2 playing on the, on the Amiga, it's aged fantastically well. Like, you wouldn't look at it and think, oh, that looks kind of grimy, ridiculous, old-school, retro. Mm -hmm. It looks like you could have released it yesterday and it would be, you know, it would be a, a viral game instantly. Well, especially in today's era of retro-style graphics. Right. <laughs> the, the cool thing about Speedball 2 is when you look at it, you know, it doesn't look like retro graphics. It is just aged incredibly well. Mm -hmm. But it's not only the graphics, you know, Speedball 2 to play is just monstrous fun whether you're playing it by yourself or playing it with uh, two people, which you could do. Speedball 2 is basically like a, a future ultra-violent version of handball, I guess, mm. where you've got these guys armed up in these like metallic body armour and the, the idea is basically to take a ball and throw it into your opponent's net. And on every count, Speedball 2 just was off the charts, you know, just brilliant graphics incredible sound effects like iconic sound effects mm. great music and just such a great tightly locked sort of gameplay feel that is just has been impossible for people to replicate so but yeah it's people to um star glider 2 and double dragon 2 all, all sequels they were all sequels <laughs> speedball 1 was okay had great music but not that great star glider 1 i never played mm. and double dragon 1 was pretty bad on the amiga i think <laughs> i think a funny thing maybe this wrap up this episode with this deep thought but a funny thing that exists in games perhaps and maybe this isn't so much the case now certainly used to be that doesn't exist in film is that getting the technology mm. together to make the game is a big right. part of the effort of making the game 
and you're often up against tight deadlines and all the rest of it. And so the first game is almost like a kind of proof of concept mm. for your technology and your sort of game idea. And the second game, especially back in this era, the second game would give you the opportunity to really refine that. And now you've had the chance, now all the designers have sort of made a whole game using this technology and mm. have learned sort of how to how to make good levels for this style of game and all the rest of it. Yeah, You know, they can make a, a more refined version of that. Right. And so I think probably in that era, it was probably quite common for sequels to be better than the original whereas now we kind of roll our eyes at sequels and with films i think there's a tendency to do that as well that's you know what i've never actually thought of that but that is a really really interesting point and it's actually very very true mm. like i can think of already uh i won't bother naming them but i can think of a few examples on the amiga where the second version was so much better than the first but better in a very consistent very kind of holistic way you know just sort of seemed like a right. a much more full much more complete representation of the intention of the, the original game. Right. I'm thinking of many examples, actually. And, it's yeah, that, that is a really, really interesting observation. It's, it's a, almost a shame, I guess, because nowadays we, we don't really tend to have high expectations for the sequel of anything, mm. whether it's movies or games. I wonder, yeah, that's, I wonder if we've lost something in the, in the art and the industry of game development that now you know it's no longer the case that we can say that oh you know the sequel is is very likely to be better than the first one because the programmers and the, the artists and the musicians have had time to you know basically hone the workflow mm. and get everything moving more efficiently and more effectively so now they can actually focus on what they're attempting to achieve with the game artistically as opposed to what they're attempting to achieve with it technologically or commercially i'm sure there must be examples but n none are coming to mind now but mm. it is i think a lot of the time it is driven by sort of business needs and you're being asked to make a certain game and the sequel needs to be this and yeah you're given much less time to work on the sequel than the first one but i'm, I'm sure there must be exceptions to that so if anybody listening is sort of jumping out their seat saying wait you forgot about this game please comment on the reddit and uh we've only made it as far as the amiga and the spectrum in our discussion of our history with games. So I suspect we will have the opportunity to talk about games further in a future episode. Yeah, we haven't even uh, talked about arcade games yet, and that was a big part of my... I haven't got to arcade games. I haven't got to... I mean, the N64 was probably the era when I played more video games than any other era. Right. We haven't got to that yet. Right. So, yes, more to come. Excellent.